Good afternoon, everybody. It's Thursday. It is March the 11th, 2021. And no, I have not been outside really yet today. I got here at Chorus Key early this morning and I went kind of like from my underground into this underground and I've not been outside. Uh, David Spargala, out of control, behind the controls. Just tell me how nice is it out there? Oh, it's beautiful. The bike ride in was just amazing. No jacket required. Phil Collins. Yeah, I know. I dropped that reference. Uh, no, uh, just riding in this morning was fantastic. The weather is just beautiful. And then uh, Saturday is going to drop to four. So enjoy it while you can. Okay, listen, I'll be right back then. Okay, bye. Just uh, kill some time I'll for me if you could. I'll find a from yesterday. Yeah, I just got to go outside and breathe it in for a second. So well, I'll do that during the news at uh, two o'clock. Actually, today, March the 11th, uh, marks one year since all of our lives were turned upside down one year, one year ago, that the uh, World Health Organization officially declared the spread of COVID-19 as a worldwide pandemic. And of course, since then, workplaces have been closed, schools shut, life as we uh, know it just kind of pretty much came to a grinding halt. And you know, my thoughts are two places today. First, with the over 20,000 Canadians who have now lost their lives to the virus, to the people, their families, and their loved ones, thinking about uh, all of them, because it's just not that 22,000. They all had uh, people who cared about them, loved them, family uh, members who were obviously uh, missing them. And today, by the way, is a national day of observance here in Canada, as we remember those who are no longer with us. And uh, Mary, uh, my thoughts also today are with our frontline healthcare heroes. I mean, those in the uh, ERs, those in the ICUs that have been uh, treating uh, those uh, inflicted with the uh, virus, and of course, those personal support workers who have gone so underappreciated for so long in long-term care. Absolutely. And I mean, let's face it, I mean, we could not have gotten through this without those those heroes, right? Those doctors, those PSWs, all those people who work in the front line to keep us safe so that we can also, you know, be able to do things like work from home. You know, they're working for us so that we can stay home. They're going to work so that we can be safe. And it's just an incredible um, story. You know, when you think back to some of the huge sacrifices that they themselves made. And, and, you know, now we're hearing that, you know, some of them are getting really burnt out because it has been a year and we've all had to make so many changes and adjust to so much. You know, I would like to think that I appreciated or I really knew what our doctors, those in the ERs and the ICUs did and personal support workers and uh, what they do for the elderly in long-term care. But I can say after this past year, I now really know and I really appreciate what uh, all of these people do uh, in these uh, professions. I mean, it is just... Uh, as you said, uh, they're on the verge of, if not already, at burnout, and justifiably so after the past year they've all had. And they just keep going. And they got to keep yeah. going because, unfortunately, yeah. the pandemic uh, keeps uh, going. I mean, here's the other thing, too, that, uh, you know, I look back a year later. That the other thing, I'm just really humbled. Uh, I'm humbled by the research community and the scientists and the fact that we've got not one, not two, not three. But we've got four vaccines a year later that are at our disposal. It's mind-blowing um, and, you know, mind-boggling, you know, when you think how long it takes to get a vaccine to fruition, like to have it out there in the needles, in the arms. One year later, here we are, and that's a testament to the ability of these researchers who can just 
fast track it when they really need to. And it was really a global effort. That's what we've, we've seen. And we've seen what we can do. And there's a, been a lot of pressure. There's been a lot of work and long hours to bring this to fruition. And here we are a year later with, like you said, not one, not two, not three, but four. It's just mind boggling and a huge testament to, you know, the kind of work that can be done when it really needs to get done. Absolutely. And listen, we'll have uh, plenty more on this uh, throughout the afternoon, the uh, one-year uh, anniversary since uh, COVID-19 was declared a uh, pandemic. We had an interview uh, on the morning show earlier today with a couple of our frontline uh, heroes that was, I got to tell you, really emotional. And I want you to hear their story. We're going to uh, rebroadcast that here on the radio coming up in our next hour. So that's coming up after 2 o'clock uh, this afternoon, an interview with two of our frontline healthcare heroes that you do not want to miss. And as I mentioned, plenty more on this uh, throughout the afternoon. Uh, but let's get to some uh, financial news here on this uh, Thursday, because the Bank of Canada, they have decided to leave the interest rate unchanged. So what exactly does this mean, and what does it mean for the housing market? Let's uh, welcome in our friend Phil Soper, CEO of Royal LePage. He joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Phil, good afternoon. Hey, great to be talking to you guys again. Likewise, Phil. Uh, rate remains at a quarter percent. Uh, much of a surprise? No. As a matter of fact, central bankers are usually a cagey lock. So, lot like the the uh, head of the Bank of Canada, the head of the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve chair. They they go, yeah, you know, I'm not a betting man, so I'll tell you what things are like today. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the future. The difference this time is the heads of banks around the world, central banks, have said, we are going to keep interest rates this low through the entire year. As a matter of fact, in the United States and Canada, they have made the commitment to take, keep interest rates low through 2022. So, no, it wasn't a surprise. All right. And is that a reflection of just where we are economically and uh, what uh, sort of effect? I mean, here we are again, uh, one year to the day that uh, COVID was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. Is that a statement on just how much devastation to the economy we have seen uh, thanks to the pandemic? Yeah, it, it is an incredibly uneven recession, economic recession. There are parts of the economy, if you think of uh, travel and tourism, live entertainment, restaurateurs, food and beverage, uh, absolutely devastated uh, by the uh, pandemic's economic impact. Whereas there are other parts of the uh, economy, including ours, that have actually seen a stimulus. And you would say the same about, uh, say, the online uh, retail business, uh, banking in general, there's, there are parts of the economy that are doing incredibly well and parts of the economy that are suffering. And, you know, we're in this together. So they're looking at the totality of the Canadian economy. All right. Well, let's look at your specialty, the housing market, the fact that interest rates are going to remain uh, where they are at a quarter percent. Uh, what does this mean for the housing market? Uh, are we going to continue to see it uh, boom throughout the year? Yeah, people don't buy homes based on their sticker price. They base them, buy them based on carrying costs. In other words, monthly payments. And when the cost of money drops, and it is at historic lows, it, it, I never expected 
to see that old five-year fix that Canadians love, five-year fixed mortgage, drop below 2%. And, you know, we've seen it drop as low as 1.5. That Those are outrageously low prices, and they translate into lower lower monthly payments. So it has been an incredible stimulant to the market. Yeah. Can I just say, uh, Phil, it is really a mind blowing where you look at where the mortgage rates are right now. I mean, my parents have both passed, but if I could bring them back here today and uh, I mean, they would look at the interest rates they were paying in the eighties for a home. Uh, they just, they couldn't believe it. I'm sure. In, in September, 1981, they peaked at 21.4%. Wow. And we're under 2% for a five-year uh, mortgage now. It, you never paid principal down. If you bought a home back then, uh, it's before my time, but if you bought a home back then, you were paying interest for, for decades and, and you didn't chip away at it. Now, young people, I mean, they're paying principal off in the first year of their uh, 25-year mortgage. It's, it's, it really is uh, an amazing stimulant for large asset classes. And there's, for for families, there's no asset class larger than housing. All right. And we were just uh, talking recently, of course, the average uh, house, uh, average uh, home price in Toronto has now officially hit the million dollar marks. Uh, so this is obviously going to be a seller's market uh, coming into the spring and the summer, you believe? And are we going to see prices continue to escalate? We're going to see bidding wars, that sort of thing? Well, yeah. And that's the other side of the, the puzzle here, you know, the money may be cheap, but as homes appreciate, uh, they get less and less affordable. So the question is, can the economy keep up with the rate of uh, price inflation, or are we going to see what happened in 2015, 16, where people were, were priced out of the market? Right now, home prices seem to be rising and broadly speaking, in the mid-teens, which is much too high for, for sustained house price appreciation in the you know 15% a year, much too high, but it's not crisis levels. So I, I do see more supply coming onto the market as the year progresses. And it's simply those who have been good citizens, they're probably a bit older, they've wanted to trade, They've wanted to sell their home, but they've been told to shelter at home, and so they have. And they're starting to get vaccinated. Uh, infection rates are falling, and I think we'll see more supply in the market. The demand is still there. We won't we won't move out of this seller's market in 2021, unfortunately. But I think there'll be some relief uh, as March moves into April and May. All right, so prices are skyrocketing. We've got record low interest rates. Again, quarter percent remains unchanged by the Bank of Canada. Do you think perhaps, Phil, because I've seen some analysts say that we're in the midst of a housing bubble, perhaps one of the biggest housing bubbles of all time. Uh, is there a fear of that out there? It doesn't feel the same as it did in the middle of the last decade, Was I where I was more concerned about uh, runaway home price inflation. We don't have a lot of speculation in the market. Uh, speculation is when you get house flippers, people who buy things and then try to sell it quickly. This is organic demand. This is people who actually want to live in homes and our lending, our lending restrictions are so tight. Uh, the uh, the mortgage uh, 
uh, hurdles you have to go through to prove that you can pay for a home with much higher uh, interest rates. I just don't see it right now. Uh, potentially, if this was to keep up, which I think it will moderate, but if it was to keep up through 2022, I could see it happening. But in 2021, no, this is people who need to put a roof over their heads. They're, they have the means. Remember, our savings rate has gone through the roof as people are traveling and going to restaurants and things. So they're really just allocating money into in, to their homes. And uh, the, the market can bear it in 2021. Okay, but beyond, you think the stress test is enough to protect uh, homeowners and protect us from a bubble? Because eventually people are going to travel again. People are going to go to restaurants and uh, spend money like they uh, used to. And if the economy uh, gets better because of that spending, interest rates, uh, they might uh, creep up, they might spike. And do you think that we're going to find a lot of people in an untenable uh, position? When you use the word bubble, typically what comes to people's mind, especially lay people, is a bursting bubble. You think, oh, it's, it's, there's going to be a crash. We haven't had a, a housing crash in this country for almost half a century. What's much more common, given our growing population, is that, that the markets hit a, what we call a correction. In other words, they flatten right out. And that's what happened uh, in 2017, 18, and 19 in Ontario and BC. So we saw, you remember the fair housing plan that the previous government introduced in Ontario, I'm sure. That was 17. That, that slammed the brakes on the market. And then the mortgage stress test in 18 did the same in, for two years. So we really had flat housing in a flat housing market for three years. And that that created both pent-up demand, but also a little bit of breathing room for prices to leap ahead again. It's not comfortable, but we're a long way from from a crisis. It's, it's not like 2015. All right. Well, it should be an interesting spring and summer, uh, that's for sure, when it comes to a real estate. Phil, appreciate the time as always, and thanks so much for the perspective. Anytime, Jeff. You take care. You as well. Phil Soper is the CEO of Royal LePage. Well, yesterday we got word the Ontario government expanding the ways that we can all get the COVID vaccine. Starting tomorrow, over 300 pharmacies in the province will be giving out the vaccine. And with some of the details, here is Sandra Hanna. She is the CEO of the Neighborhood Pharmacy Association. And she joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Sandra, nice to speak with you again. Hey, Jeff. Great to be here again. Thank you for having me. All right. So our neighborhood pharmacies, are they are they ready to roll? We, we're really excited to be part of this uh, initial launch for community vaccination. We're uh, ready to go. We've been working with government for a number of months now. Um, uh, getting ramped up for uh, for this day. So we're, we're very excited to be uh, able to help in uh, supporting Ontario uh, in its road to economic recovery and, and to getting Can- Canadians, Ontarians um, vaccinated. So yes, we are very, very excited. All right, well, walk us through it. Uh, how are things going to uh, work starting tomorrow? Sure. So uh, right now we've got 330 pharmacies approximately who are engaged in this initial rollout. Uh, the, the government has rolled out the uh, community vaccination in pharmacies in three public health units right now. It's sort of the initial launch, uh, calling it a pilot, but it's, you know, we're, we're going to be 
we're going to be expanding beyond these three public health units, of course, uh, and we're already starting to talk about that. But for the moment, it's Kingston, Windsor, Essex, and Toronto starting uh, starting this week. Um, it's currently uh, being recommended for, for, for the eligibility for patients today is from 60 to 64. Uh, so for, for uh, Ontarians who are 60 to 64 in those three public health units, uh, they can actually find a listing of participating pharmacies on the ministry's COVID-19 website. Um, and they'll be able to see the uh, list of 330 pharmacies um, that are participating in this initial launch. And uh, and they'll be able to, to locate uh, the pharmacy closest to them or their pharmacy who's participating um, and find information on that website uh, as to uh, how to book an appointment. So generally, uh, either call the pharmacy, the participating pharmacy, or uh, go to their website and, and just follow the pharmacy's uh, booking and appointment um, methods that they're using, the appointment system they're using. Okay, but you do need an appointment. You just cannot show up to your neighborhood pharmacy uh, starting tomorrow and uh, get the vaccine like you would, I don't know, buy a pack of gum or something. Yeah, we are we are strongly recommending and the ministry strongly recommending that it be appointment based. Uh, and really, that's just to protect the safety of, of uh, people coming into the store and the staff in the store and just to to make sure that when you do come into a store, a vaccine's there for you and uh, and that, that uh, we can manage social distancing and safety within the stores as well and, and try and avoid those lineups as much as possible. Well, I was going to say, is that a key message you want to get out and avoid uh, lineups? Because I know there has been some concern that people are going to show up uh, en masse and uh, much like a scene we have uh, seen throughout the pandemic, uh, perhaps in front of Costco or something like that, uh, that we're going to see people not physically or socially uh, distancing. Yeah, I think I think for everybody's safety and for, for convenience and efficiency, too, best process would just be to call your participating pharmacy and, and book an appointment and find out what their, their processes are. But, yeah, we are recommending uh, appointments just uh, for that reason. Yeah. And uh, who's giving out the uh, needles in the uh, pharmacies? And uh, do you know how many uh, in each uh, pharmacy? Is it just uh, one, uh, I don't know, RN or that that's uh, giving the jabs? are actually giving the jabs. So pharmacists, um, as you know, are, are, are licensed and trained and um, certified to administer vaccines, uh, no different than they do uh, for the flu shot every year. So pharmacists are, are administering the vaccine. Um, some uh, regulated and licensed technicians are also giving out the vaccines in some locations. Uh, so it's really the pharmacy staff, your, your neighborhood pharmacy team is administering your vaccine uh, in pharmacies. Yeah. Sandra, do we have any idea starting tomorrow with uh, 325 odd pharmacies participating in this first pilot project? Uh, just how many people are going to be able to get to vaccinated through a pharmacy on a daily or weekly basis? Yeah. So, so I mean, we we know that pharmacies' capacity is is to administer up to a million vaccines per week in pharmacies in Ontario. That being said, we don't have that vaccine supply just yet. So, uh, at this point, the capacity and the amount of people vaccinated. Uh, each day really is to, to match the supply that we have. And that's also why we're, we're starting with the limited capacity of pharmacies as well, uh, just to, to ensure that we can um, keep that supply available in pharmacies. Right now, for this first initial launch, just with the vaccine supply that we have available in Ontario right now, uh, we are estimating and we're, we're sort of planning for about 40-ish vaccines per day. Um, and that should should keep us going until we have more supply. Once we have more supply, we do believe pharmacies will be able to administer, uh, in many cases, more uh, than that. But that's that's an average capacity that we think uh, pharmacies can administer. And 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 with that that daily capacity and the number of pharmacies we have across the province, we we can administer up to a million vaccines a week. 
Wow. So just how key do you think the neighborhood pharmacy is going to be moving forward? And has the government indicated that to to you? Because it seems to me that once we uh, roll this program out uh, a little wider, the neighborhood pharmacy is going to be maybe the place to go. It's going to be a lot easier for a lot of people to get to than, say, you know, the Metro Toronto Convention Center or some of these other vaccination sites. Absolutely. I think I think pharmacies are going to play a key role and we know pharmacies will play a key role. We've, we've heard it in, in press conferences. We've heard it from government. We've heard it from the task force and the general when he speaks. Um, you know, pharmacies across the province will eventually be engaged once we have enough supply to make sure that there is supply at all those pharmacies. But as you said, pharmacies are in every community across Ontario and uh, across the country, really. So I think that it's going to be really easy and convenient for people to go to their local pharmacy to get their vaccine. And as supply becomes more readily available, we know pharmacies are going to play a really, really critical role uh, in um, administering, uh, you know, again, up to a million vaccines a week and, and really making that convenient for people close to home. Well, the more needles and more arms as quickly as possible, the better. And uh, Sandra, we wish you best of luck uh, starting tomorrow. And thanks so much for joining us and for the update here this afternoon. Thanks again for having me, Jeff. Talk to you soon. You bet. There goes uh, Sandra Hanna, CEO of the Neighborhood Pharmacy Association of Canada. All right, let's bring in our uh, personal finance expert, Rabina Ahmed-Hawk. She joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Rabina, good afternoon. Nice to have you. And thanks, thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to start here on the uh, one-year mark of COVID uh, being a pandemic right around the world uh, with uh, Young Canadians news that they are the ones who have struggled the most this uh, past year when it comes to the pandemic uh, financially. Uh, What do we know? What are we hearing? Yeah, so this is an Ipsos poll that was done with Global, and it found that, uh, you know, among all the people that they, they talked to, that young and unemployed Canadians are the ones that are suffering the most. A couple of days ago, Jeff, we talked about the wealth gap, how uh, many people who have been able to work from home are actually getting wealthier because they don't have many extra expenses uh, that are, you know, that they have to pay for and they're able to keep that money. But on the other end of it, young Canadians, so those age 18 to 34, are saying that they are, uh, 35% are saying that their situation is worse off financially than it was uh, the year prior. Or rather, 49% are saying it was uh, worse off than the year prior. And that's compared to 35% of overall Canadians. So much more uh, likely that if you are a young person uh, in, in Canada, that your situation year over year um, has worsened financially. I mean, not just the fact that uh, coronavirus has shut down industries and people have become employ- unemployed, but there's a lack of support in some ways for young people to find work. Uh, there hasn't been as much opportunity for them to go out there and make more money. And so that all has culminated into many young people uh, now saying that their, their situation is actually worse year over year. Yeah. Do we know the reasons why? Uh, what's underpinning this? Uh, why have those between the ages of 18 and 34, why have they been disproportionately hit economically? So one of the major things is that um, the cost of living uh, continues to rise in Canada. So many young people, they are in that group where they would want to buy a home um, and they're seeing that, you know, that the, the, the money that they have is not going to go very far when it comes to real estate purchases. So um, they're losing their jobs disproportionately because uh, industries, often young people are employed in industries that have been hardest hit. So the restaurant industry, retail and food services, hospitality, these are jobs that many young people often have over 
over the summer or between between uh, when they're in school uh, during the Christmas break. And so those jobs have disappeared. And then on top of it, the cost of living has continued to go up. And young people are not finding that they're able to, to land in jobs that are able to support the kind of money that you need to live, especially in a big city like Toronto. I'm also uh, wondering here, Rabina, whether or not uh, this is going to continue for this uh, age group, this demographic, those between 18 and 34, disproportionately uh, affected or hit by the pandemic. Because, you know, you have a feeling as uh, the years go by that uh, they are going to be the ones that are sadly shouldering the burden when it comes to uh, repaying. I mean, there's been a tremendous uh, cost, as we well know, of uh, governments and, uh, you know, the amount of benefits and such that they've been handing out over this uh, past year that you have to believe that's disproportionately going to fall on this generation as well to repay. Yeah, I mean, when the pandemic is over, we are going to have hundreds of billions of dollars as a country that we have to pay back. And that money is going to come from taxpayers. And many of those taxpayers are going to be young people first starting out in their careers, uh, first starting to pay income tax um, and starting to learn, you know, um, how all of that works. And it could be that if there's increase in taxes or decrease in services, that's going to in, impact them more disproportionately because they're the ones that still have to buy their first home. They're the ones that still have to have a family. They still have to save for retirement. They're beginning their lives. Whereas those people who have been able to already save money, already been able to buy a home that they've mostly got paid off, they're doing much better because they've been able to take advantage of the time when uh, you know, the, the government wasn't in as much debt. So we'll have to see how both provincial and federal governments, how they deal with the debt after the pandemic is over. And that could be in the form of higher taxes. And so for young people who already, you know, we've seen wage stagnation in the last 10 years. So home prices have gone up, you know, double digits every single year. Wages have not certainly gone up in the same way. And so the same home that someone making $50,000 could afford in 2010 can't afford that same home in 2020. And that shouldn't be the case. It should be that if you're still, you know, if your if your salary is going up, that you should be able to still afford a similar kind of home that you could have afforded in that same job 10 years ago. And that's simply not the case. I mean, young people are uh, more and more being stretched um, because they're not making the same kind of money and the cost of living continues to ro- skyrocket, quite frankly. Yeah. Just finally on this, Rabina, is there a sense, though, that we're turning a corner when it comes to those between 18 and 34 with the vaccines uh, arrival now? And uh, I know there's been a lot of talk this week as to whether or not Toronto and Peel, can they get to red, the red zone? And some of these uh, businesses that, uh, you know, this demographic works for, in particular restaurants and hospitality uh, reopening, uh, is their situation, do you think, is it about to change for the better? I mean, definitely as the economy opens up and more people get vaccinated, businesses start to open up. They're going to hire people, including young people. We always need young people to be employed in the economy. Entry-level positions are always available. That's usually where most of us start. And then we climb that corporate ladder to get to whatever position that we we get to. So, you know, as the economy gets better, it's going to get better for young people. But, you know, the cost of living is still high for young people. Debt loads are still high for young people. And their wages are not going up in... uh, comparison to the how much life is costing and so those three things still remain and if if you know interest rates remain where they are and inflation continues to 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 pump home prices up uh, we're going to see young people more and more struggling financially even after the pandemic is over uh, because they simply can't afford some of the basic things that most young people want to do buy a house get married have children live a you know nice life Uh, many of those things are just going to be unaffordable for many young people 
Joined on the line by our personal finance expert, Rabina Ahmed-Hawk. And Rabina, here is something we haven't talked about in a little while. GameStop. GameStop, <laughs> yes. once again, is uh, taking investors on a, on a bit of a wild ride. Yeah, so this is actually because of news. This is not because of speculation on the internet or because of Reddit users pumping the stock up, trying to stick it to the big hedge funds who are shorting the stock. This is because uh, uh, they have appointed Ryan Cohen, who is the former uh, co-founder of Chewy Brands, um, as a, uh, uh, as part of their transition team to become more e-commerce, to, to, uh, to, to offer their services, um, on a more, um, e-commerce basis. So they're becoming a tech company from going from becoming a brick and mortar company to becoming a tech company. So that is why this excitement has now started because GameStop is, you know, like any other brick and mortar company has been suffering because people don't go into stores and buy things anymore physically. They want to be able to download games. They want to be able to get games on demand. So now that there is this um, new person at the helm saying that I'm going to take the company into the future, a lot of investors getting excited about it. Of course, we saw the stock kind of peak. Uh, this week and then come down again, but it's still, you know, trading around $283 American today. Uh, so, you know, much ahead of that $20 it was at at the beginning of the year. So if you've been in GameStop for the long term, you're still doing very well uh, on that on that investment. Okay, but this time around, it's all legit and we're not expecting the stock market to come to a uh, halt. <laughs> Well, I mean, it is legit in the sense that there's actual news. This is why, you know, this happens all the time. You appoint a new CEO or the company says it's going in a new direction. Investors like it. They buy into it. Um, this is exactly what has happened. You know, the company saying that we are trying to move our platform um, online. We are trying to offer more uh, digital services to our customers. And that is good news because if they don't, they're, they're going to die, quite frankly. No one is going to buy physical games in the future. Um, but... Uh, because this gate, this stock has, you know, been, become internet famous, it just seems to have more attention on it when anything happens. Um, you know, this would happen with any company, but with this company in particular, they call, they call it a meme stock, a stock that, you know, seems to live on the internet, seems to create a lot of buzz on the internet. And so, um, this is why probably we're paying more attention to this than we would to any other company that had the announcement of a, a new, uh, CEO or, or a new person that's taking the helm, uh, to, take the company a new direction. Yeah, listen, I'm just sitting here looking at a graph uh, when it comes to GameStop uh, for the last, since January up until now, uh, this week uh, in March, and the highs and lows, the fluctuations. This is why I do not play the stock market, because that would be my EKG. That's exactly the way my heart rate would look. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. And I think that's smart, Jeff, because most of us don't have the time or the guts to actually get in and out of the market in the way that, you know, you have to if you're going to make money in this environment. You know, the buy and hold strategy is best for 99% of people. I would not recommend anybody buy GameStop uh, at any point in this uh, in, in, in this story. This is just entertainment. We like to talk about it. We like to hear about what's happening and follow the, the volatility and, and see it as as just mere entertainment rather than actual investment advice. All right, Rabina, great stuff as always. Thanks so much for the time this afternoon. Thanks, Jeff. Rabina Ahmed Hawk, 640 Toronto's personal finance expert. Okay, Thursday afternoon, time for a weekly wellness update. Here's Laura DeSanctis. She's on Instagram at Go With Your Gut, and she's on Global News Radio 640 Toronto right now. Laura, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Good afternoon. All right. One year ago, COVID was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. And uh, I know, first off, Laura, can you believe it's only been a year? <laughs> no, I mean, it feels like a lot longer and I'm sure I'm not the only one. 
Yeah, I don't know. It just it feels like five years inside of one year. And, you know, all of us have been on such a roller coaster, highs, lows, ups, downs. A lot of people feeling a lot of uh, anxiety. We're talking about our frontline healthcare workers uh, earlier, upwards of 80% of them report feeling burnout. For those that are feeling anxious on this day or any day or feeling a little burnt out, uh, what advice do you have from the wellness sphere for them? Um. I think meditation, we spoke about this a lot, is a really good uh, meditation, movement, getting outside, trying to move your body every day, and even journaling. Those are some of the simple acts that we can do. Start to journal your thoughts and your feelings that come up to really keep tabs on your mental health. Um, that can also, I feel, can help stabilize your mood. The journaling and the meditation, that's something that I started to really implement every day now um, during COVID, and I found that really helped. And then also, even if you can, try taking a mood-boosting supplement, so a supplement uh, that has amino acids in it, something called uh, GABA or rhodiola, and they really help target the body's hormone levels to help manage stress and anxiety. So I always like to do a holistic approach, so the food, the supplementation, the journaling, and the movement. Okay, a couple of things about that. First of all, GABA and those other supplements uh, you're speaking of, is that something you would put, I don't know, into your tea or into a smoothie? Uh, where would you take that? Those are actually supplements on their own in uh, a supplement form. So they're mood-boosting supplement that you can get. Or there's a lot of supplements on the market now that are just about boosting your energy, and they have a combination of GABA and L-theanine and rhodiola. So you can get them online or at your local um, natural health food store. But those ones I find that they really help boost your mood and your feel-good hormones. All right. And when it comes to journaling, and, you know, you and I have talked about this on and off, uh, you know, for years uh, now, but one thing I've always wanted to ask you about journaling, I mean, is the practice and the exercise of that therapeutic because you're just getting your feelings out and you're getting them on paper, or is this something you go back and, and revisit and, and reread? It really depends on the person. I know some people like to do a bullet journal or they like to journal before the end of their day just to get their thoughts all out and then they'll read it or go back and reread it a few days or a week later. It really depends on the person. I don't think there's any right or wrong way to journal. Um, I've, there's different studies that say that we should journal every day to really help it boost our mood. But I think everyone is different. And there are some journals like the five-minute journal that they have prompts. So you're not just writing on a blank canvas and you're not sure what to write. So those can also be helpful. All right. Meantime, coming up this weekend, uh, here's another, uh, you know, harbinger that spring is uh, upon us. Never mind the nice warm temperatures here in Toronto today. But uh, we spring ahead into a daylight saving time, Laura. Mm, daylight saving time is back. And I find that it's pretty controversial. I know a lot of people are not feeling like they want to lose an hour of sleep. I mean, how do you feel about that, Jeff? Uh, I like it when we fall back and we get an extra hour on the weekends. What I don't like is this here, daylight saving time. I mean, if we're going to lose an hour, why does it have to be Sunday? Can, can we make it Wednesday? Yeah, why does it have to be Sunday? <laughs> That's when we have to change our clocks. I know it automatically does that now. But Sunday at 2 a.m., it kind of just creeps up on us. And now there's a hashtag called uh, lock the clock. So a lot of people are activists saying that we need to stop um, bringing forward and that daylight savings time of falling back. I, I agree with you. I do like the falling back, but spring forward, not so much. Yeah. Okay. So what does that do to us in our bodies when it comes to our wellness, when we lose? I mean, it doesn't seem on the surface anyways, like a really big deal. Okay. We lost an hour, but it can really mess with your system. 
They can for sure. So a lot of people, um, in terms of adjusting to the daylight saving time, there are some health risks associated with it, um, especially because of this transition to not getting enough sleep. So what I'd like to tell people is give yourself a few days um, to adjust to the time change. So in the few days leading up, preparing for the time change, so maybe tonight or tomorrow, try going to bed and waking up a bit earlier than usual to prep your body for that hour that you're going to lose. Um, I find a lot of people cannot adjust well, at least for the first week. It rarely throws them off. All right. Some uh, great advice is, yeah, it is uh, hard to believe that uh, daylight saving time is here. But uh, good news is, and this has got to be good for our wellness as well, that uh, we're going to inherit, we're going to get an extra hour of daylight, right? For sure. An extra hour of daylight, which is great. Um, and then I also want to mention is you probably want to avoid caffeine after lunch and other stimulants that can affect wakefulness, especially a few days before and after the time change. So keep that in mind as well. All right. Already broke that today, but uh, there's always tomorrow. <laughs> Laura, good stuff as always. Good to speak with you. Thank you. There goes our wellness expert, Laura DeSanctis. She's on Instagram at Go With Your Gut.